Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to finish out the Joyful series. And I'm excited to kind of close out Philippians. A little sad to see it go. One of my favorite books, but uh, Colossians is next, and, and that's going to be equally phenomenal. When I was 16 in high school, one of my best friends at the time, his name was Wayne. Wayne Turnage, uh, on his 16th birthday, uh, which is September 18th, his 16th birthday, his parents surprised him with a Nissan 300ZX, all right? It's a little sports car, two-door sports car. It had T-tops, it was red, and uh, we were both equally pretty excited about this. He being my best bud, you know, and I was there at his birthday party when his dad drove it around, and there it was, and they had gotten it waxed, and I mean, it was nice. Best, coolest feature was that it had a six-disc changer in the trunk, all right? So you got out there, you open the trunk, you put six discs in there. We were riding Cool, really cool. My birthday is September 21st. So three days later, at my birthday party, my parents surprised me with a new Newsboys CD. Uh, It's called Step Up to the Microphone. It had just come out and still one of my favorite CDs. In fact, I think I still have Step Up to the Microphone by Newsboys. Phenomenal. Top to bottom, one of the best CDs. And um, that was just the way it was. I'm sure I got other things as well, like a shirt or something like that. But our family did not have quite the same disposable income as the Turnage family did, and, and, and that was okay. In fact, I remember my parents saying, um, hey, listen, you can listen to your new CD in Wayne's car. And so uh, that's what we did, you know. And, and so we went and we loaded that CD up and took the T-tops off, and we were young and wild and free, entertaining angels and enjoying our life as, um, as little 16-year-olds there. And listen, I, I mean, I mean this, bottom of my heart. I was okay with that. That was just kind of what I expected. That's the way that it was supposed to go. I never expected a a new car and, and, um, you know, Wayne did. And that's the way that life went. I was content in that moment. However, there have been plenty of occasions, lots of times, where I have seen the life stage of somebody else or what they have or, or what they're doing with their life, the accomplishments that they have made, and I have envied them. That envy has grown into a discontentment with my own life stage and my own uh, perspective on this world. This is uh, sort of one of those things that I can take solace in is knowing that, uh, you know, all of us have experienced that, right? Everybody in this room, you would have to say that at some point, I think probably everybody, maybe there's a few of you who have not, but at some point in your life, you have looked at the life stage of somebody else, what they own or what they have, and you have thought to yourself that you wish that you had that, that we have struggled with being content with where we are in life, where we live, or, or, or the life stage that we currently find ourselves in. We may at times feel like what we have is not enough, it's not sufficient, it's not nice. We may get trapped up thinking to ourselves that we are not enough, that we have not accomplished a lot. And all of those things, those situations, these moments in our lives, they can cause, they can cause uh, heart hurt. They cause pain. 
We look out and we become discontented with where we are. Sometimes we turn it into a drive. Sometimes we can look at what other people have and we are driven to accomplish that, to, to acquire that, to be there. We push ourselves in that direction. But if we are not careful, the real danger is that the end or the more or the better becomes the goal. That it's not any longer about accomplishing or achieving. It's just being better or getting more. That we become obsessed with what it is that we can accomplish. To be honest with you, there were two directions that I could have ended Philippians on. Taking the end of Philippians and and the verses that are in there. When you read it, there's really two strong directions that we could go. And I chose this one to be selfish. I struggle with contentment. This is one of the things where I really battle with, with being content with where I am. I am aggressive by nature. I'm an aggressive person. I, uh, I have a deep conviction that you are supposed to leave everything you find better than the way that you found it. So that's a conversation, that's a, a room, that's a budget, that's an organization. This is just this drive that is within me. And while those things can be okay in my sinful, fallen nature, just being human, those things turn into uh, this unhealthy desire to constantly be looking past where I am and what I have and who I am. So I chose this. I thought what we would do is we're going to look at contentment. I'm going to spend the whole week in it. I'm going to just, you know, just dive headfirst in it. And then I would share with you what it is that I have found. And so if you're okay with that, that's what we're going to do this morning. If you're not okay with that, you have absolutely no choice in the matter. (laughs) Philippians chapter 4 verse 11 uh, through 14 says this, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. Um, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. Still, You did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Obviously, looking right here, content and down here content, Paul is speaking on the topic of contentment. That's where we are. And before we get into the meat of what this text says, I thought I would just say a quick word about contentment. Contentment, my friends, is not the same as settling. Those of us who really struggle with contentment, you ever been in that situation in which you're, you're all anxious about something? You're trying to achieve something that just seems to be right outside of your reach. And you'll have a friend, a parent, a loved one say to you, you just need to be happy with where you are. You need to be content with your circumstances. And we know that they're right, but what we argue back is that's just like settling. It's just accepting things. It's like standing in the middle of a fire ant pile and being like, this is okay, you know? And it's not We don't feel that way. And so what I want to be very clear with to my own heart is what I have found is that contentment and settling are not the same thing. A biblical definition of contentment is a person who feels wholly complete and sufficient, who lacks absolutely nothing. It is a person who feels whole, complete, and sufficient and lacks absolutely nothing. Regardless of where you are currently, whether you are completely discontented with your life or whether you think that this is great, you're happy as a clam, 
on those two levels, we can all agree that the feeling of being complete would be something well worth striving for, something that we really want to accomplish. But here's the hope, and here's really what I think is encouraging, our good news. Twice, Paul says, I have learned. I have learned. So for you and for me, who are not often content, we may struggle and we may think to ourselves, well, well, this is just the way I am. It's the way I'm wired. It's my personality profile. This is the number that I am, that I will never be content. And yet the encouragement is that Paul says that you can learn to be content. And so again, for those of us who struggle with, with letting things be the way they are, let's work on this. Let's make this better. Let's be discontented with our discontent. And let's strive to push further and harder into that. So we're going to look at these three verses primarily and a few other ones here in just a minute. But before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for this, this word. Thank you for this encouragement. God, I pray that we would maybe hold up these three buckets about where we are and what we have and who we are. And God, we would leave here today contented in where you have us. God, that we would rest in the best and that our contentment would bring about generosity. So God, we are humbly coming to you now, admitting our faults and admitting your glory, praying that you would mature us in that reality. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. As we think about the matter of contentment, I think it would be good and maybe beneficial for us to break it into three parts. You see, some of us are content with certain aspects of our lives, but it's other areas of our lives that, that cause us problems, that keep us up at night, that drive us to unhealthy extremes. And so if you want to, if you're taking notes, these will be the big three buckets we're going to look at. We're going to look at where we are, what we have, and who we are. The first one in verse 11 is that idea of where we are. Paul says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. These circumstances here, it's important for us to keep in mind that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. His circumstances that he's alluding to, the idea and the concept at which he is uh, bringing up is that he is imprisoned. It is Paul's imprisonment that is the circumstance in which he has learned to be content. And so it begs the question and it drives me to ask you this uh, reflective idea. What circumstance are you in? What life stage do you find yourself in currently? I mean, we can define them in a bunch of different ways, but isn't it amazing how often uh, and how much of our time we spend chasing after the next life stage? We're always hungry. We're always pushing. We're always trying to get to the next life stage. I remember specifically, I can remember where I was sitting in Central Baptist Church, three big uh, pews there, uh, banks of pews. There was a middle section too. And my family and I, we sat about two thirds back on the right side over here. And the preacher was talking about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, which means at any moment, at any minute, Jesus could return like that. And I believe that. That's true. That's in scripture. But I thought to myself, please, Lord, just wait till after I'm married and my honeymoon. And then 
you can return. For obvious teenage boys' reasons, that's what I was waiting for. Like, Lord, I know you're coming back, but I, that's all I got out of that sermon, you know. Just please wait till after my honeymoon or else that would just be a jip, you know. <laughs> but we spend our times as children waiting for like my 12-year-old looking at trucks. He's 12, all right. I told him, I said, let's pick this back up in like three years, okay. Let's put a pause on it. Waiting for that next phase and then you, you can drive and then you want to be married and then you want children, and then you want them to be potty trained. And everybody's like, once they are potty trained, life is way better. And let me tell you, that is absolutely true. That is way better, all right? Once they can do that by themselves, it is absolutely better. And then we're waiting for them to, you know, uh, be able to drive so that we don't have to go to the grocery store as much and we can send one of them, you know, to take their brothers around town, that sort of stuff. And then we wait for, where it won't it be fun to pick out a college? And won't it be fun when they're out of college? And won't it be fun when we can pay off college? And, and, and won't it be fun when we are totally empty nesters? Or then when I'm retired? Or then when you are retired? And life stages, life stages, life stages. We are constantly always pushing for the next thing. And it's not, normally I would stand up here and say, and what we are in danger of doing, and I can't even say that. What we are doing is robbing the now of its joy and of its beauty. Where God has you right now in the moment that you are in. It reminds me of an Old Testament story in which the character's name is Sarah. God had spoken to Sarah and he told her, I am going to give you a child. She did not have a child up to that point. And she was so impatient with the circumstances that she was in. She was so impatient with the life stage that she had found herself in that she constantly pushed, in fact, to the point in which she convinced her husband to have a child with one of their slaves. As if that child would fill the gap, as if that child would, would, would be her own. And then later, when God did give Sarah her own child, it was the mama and the baby that suffered, the other ones that suffered, not because of anything that they had done, but because she was impatient with her life stage. See, we rob ourselves of the reality that God has you where he has you in order to teach you something that you are going to need in the next phase. You're there for a purpose. And you are there for a reason. And Paul says, I am content in my own prison cell. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance that I find myself in. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says there is an occasion for everything. So we are to learn and to realize that we are where God has us. Just the other day, my third son over here, Amos, and I are... Uh, headed back from his soccer practice and he was sitting kind of like he's sitting right now with his feet up in my chair which drives me crazy in the truck but he did and he had his water bottle and he was kind of looking at it and he said dad are you shorter and I said am I shorter yeah are you shorter and I said like less tall and he said yes are you shorter and I said I don't think so um, why and he said because it seems to me that people get taller and taller and taller and then they get shorter and shorter and shorter and you just had a birthday so are you shorter and I said well number one you're right it does seem to be the way that it goes but number two I think I'm a ways away from that you know and so 
I don't think so. No, I don't think that I am shorter. He goes, when will you be? And I said, let's not rush it. Let's just, let's just wait till it happens, all right? Let's just see, because it will. So let's just wait till it happens. I kid you not, for like the last week, I've been thinking to myself, I need to measure, and <laughs> am I shorter? Because <laughs> that means I'm on the other side of this, you know? And so I haven't done that yet because I'm afraid of the results. And so we need to be, careful and content with the stage that we are in. Because like I told Amos, it's going to happen when it happens. You can't push it. You can't force it. It just happens when it happens. So be where you are. So not only do we need to be content with where we are, but we need to be content with what we have. All right. So that's the big one, right? That's what we thought we were going to get to. Philippians 4.12 says, I know how to make do with a little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. He really gets at the idea here of our possessions. And he talks a little bit, I know how to make do with a little. And that's important, right? Because that's the way that we think of contentment. That's the way that we think of satisfaction. This is why when, you're, when, you, have a, when you have a child or when you're around your, your nephew or your niece and you give them a cookie and they want to and you tell them what you are supposed to tell them as an adult, you need to be what? Happy with what you have, right? Because we need to teach people. We need to learn ourselves that if you have a little, then you need to be happy with that. You need to be contented with that. That's good. That's great. So I don't need to preach that. But the next part is really kind of weird. The next part doesn't compute. Paul says, and I know how to make do with a lot. Well, of course you do. You have a lot, you know. It's, that's, not, that's not anything, Paul. You know, and he says, whether I'm uh, well-fed or in abundance, I, I, I have learned to be content with all that I have. You know, that's, that's not the way that we think of contentment. We don't think of contentment with where we have a lot. But, but hear me on this. For our church, for our city, for our community, for the people that represent our church, this is probably more so where we need to camp out with the idea of being the kind of person who is content with having a lot. Because, listen to me, if you are the sort of person that cannot park in your garage because you have so much stuff, then you have a lot. If you're the kind of person that has a third garage full of toys, then you have a lot. If you have a gun cabinet that has multiple guns in it, you have a lot. You only fire one of those things one at a time, but you have a lot. If your attic is filled with seasonal decor, (laughs) does not matter. Every couple months, the whole thing shifts, then you have a lot. If you have ever thrown away half a loaf of bread because it went bad, before you could eat it, you have a lot. Nearly all of us are here with a lot. Nearly all of us find ourselves in this position. I can't say definitively because I don't know your life circumstances, but I would venture to guess that almost all of us are much more in this category than we are in this category. So let me ask you a question and you answer it in your own mind. Are you completely and always content. You have a lot. So are you always content? Well, of course not. So we need to learn to be content with a lot. 
So how do we do that? I think Paul gives us two clues on how to do that. The first one, I think what he does is the quantity. He says here, whether in abundance or in need, meaning that he recognized that he had a lot. I'm telling you, it is good for your soul. It is good for your own human maturity to just stand back and admit the reality. I have a lot. I mean, how many of us have caught ourselves, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but you have caught yourself standing in front of a rack full of shirts and a rack full of pants and a dresser full of clothes, thinking to yourself, I have nothing to wear. You ever thought that? You ever said that? You ever felt that way? But you didn't say it out loud, right? Because that would be sinful. Just think it, and it's not a sin, right? We have a lot And it's helpful. I think it's good in this venture toward contentment to just stand back and go, you know what? I do. I have a lot. So the first thing that he recognizes there is the quantity. The next thing that he recognizes is the quality, whether well-fed or hungry. He not only recognizes that he has a lot, but that what he has is sufficient. Now, I understand that you may not necessarily love your home anymore. Maybe stuff has changed. You're not really big on that brick color anymore. Or the floors aren't exactly what you want. Or the neighborhood went downhill or something like that. But the reality is that we live in places, most of us, I'm assuming all of us, live in places that keep us dry and warm and safe. You have enough. Most of us have clothes, enough clothes to change multiple times in a week. And they will keep you warm and modest, and clean, you have enough. The quantity of what you have and the quality of what you have is sufficient. Because here's what we run into, and here's the real problem, the pain point. Could you imagine the God of the universe who has blessed you beyond imagination, hearing you say the words, I have nothing good I have nothing good to wear. This house is worthless. This car is a piece of junk. These clothes are not what I want. Could you imagine the God of the universe who has blessed you immensely and has children who have nothing, literally nothing, who are starving to death, naked and diseased. He has children and he hears his other children say, I don't have anything good. Could you imagine that concept? The concept that we live in. Our chairman of deacons this last week said this phrase. His name's Tim. He says, relatively speaking, we have hit the lottery if you live in America. And that's true. That's absolutely true. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching this story. And I love this story because there's so much humanity to it. You got to picture Jesus. He's teaching and there's all these people standing around and he's talking about this one topic. And then all of a sudden, this other guy in the middle of the crowd yells out, teacher, he interrupts Jesus and changes the subject. Could you imagine? Jesus is talking. You're like, yeah, 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 that's good. Hey, listen, he says, teacher, tell my brother to give me my half of the inheritance. And Jesus says, who? I'm not your judge. Who made me the arbiter? Which is really funny because Jesus is the judge. But he says, who who made me the arbiter? And then Jesus responds in this amazing way. He says, let me see, I got the quote right here. He says, 
watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. He says, watch out and be on guard. Listen, here's the thing about that that is so gripping is that the man who interrupts Jesus, assuming that what he's saying is right, is in the right. His brother won't give him his half of the inheritance. It is rightly his. It is legally his own. His father, his parents have have left a will and, and this portion is his. He is in the right. And Jesus is not negating that. He's just stepping to the side of it and saying, just be careful that when all of that gets sorted out by whoever the judge or the arbiter is going to be, when all of that gets sorted out, just make sure, this is what Jesus says, just be careful that what you have doesn't have you. That the possessions that you acquire, I can almost hear him saying, are you willing to lose your brother over that half of your dad's junk? Just be careful that we don't think that one's life is in the abundance of our possessions. Be content with where you are and what you have. And then really driving down to the heart of it, Paul gives us this one. We all know this one, right? This is a coffee mug verse. You've got this memorized or you've seen it on iBlack. This is, I am able to do all things, win state, get the promotion, pass the bar, through him who strengthens me. I'm able to do everything through him who strengthens me. We like to focus on this I am able part, but really here's the key, through him. Meaning Paul saying that my identity is in Jesus. That what Jesus has accomplished is how I am defined and what my worth is. And so you've got to ask yourself, then what is Paul's identity? Well, if you have a Bible or if you have your, um, your app there and you scroll up to Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 is the very beginning of the book that we are now ending. And at the very beginning, Paul says these words. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants. The word is doulos. You can translate it slave. We translate it servants often in English, especially the Western world because of the past of European and American sinful evil actions that took place. So I like to use the word doulos. Doulos in the Greek or in the first century Roman world were people who could often submit themselves to servitude of another person. You could do this to pay off a debt. You could do this because of a number of different circumstances. It usually lasted seven years and they put themselves under the servitude. In other words, the, the definition really is that the doulos, their rights and their privileges and their identity was set by their master. That's really the heart of what Paul is trying to get across here. He says, I am a servant of Christ. I am a slave of Jesus. And slaves of Jesus, servants of Jesus are not entangled. They're not concerned with the trappings of this world. They're not tempted by these things that pull them aside. My identity rests in Jesus. Paul uses the word again in other writings when he uses the word doulos. And he says, be careful that you are not a doulos to other people. Don't let your identity and your perspective and your passions be defined by other people. We all see this when you notice that there's a trend when people are doing something that's ridiculous and then they're posting it on TikTok. We see that they're just a slave or, 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 or they are entrapped by being a part of something that anybody with two brain cells would step back and go, 
That's silly. Why are you doing that? Why are you being trapped in that way? It's because we are so tempted to be doulas of other people. What's, what else is also beautiful is that in another text, Paul will say that Christ made himself doulas. He made himself a slave of God in order to secure the salvation of humanity. That he put himself under the will and the way of God in order to achieve salvation for our good and his glory. So Paul says, my identity is in Jesus. My identity is in who he is. All of this has been helpful to me. I am convinced that a great deal of our internal stress and our constant unrest is our lack of contentment in who we are, where we are, and what we have. As we think deeply on the matter, I would just encourage you to rest in his best. You see, there are two verses in this text that are famous. Verse 13 and verse 19. The first one in 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In 19 it says, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. Both of those verses are famous because we like to take them out of context and apply them to whatever we want to. In the first one, um, I am able to do all things. We take this to mean that anything I set my mind to, that I'm able to accomplish as long as I'm, I'm good with God. That's the way that we understand that. And then in 19, we understand this one to be that anything that I want, then God will give me. This is the verse that some um, bad preachers use in order to justify getting a jet or, or a nice house in, in, in South Florida or something like that. This, these are the verses because anything I want, of course, I'm in God's will and that's what he's going to give me. But when we take these two verses and we put them back into the context of contentment, we don't pull them out of the context, but we put them back into the context of contentment. They mean entirely different things. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. All the things that a person can do, it's, it's, it's qualified, y'all. A bank robber cannot whisper this verse to themselves right before they bust in and shoot up the place, all right? This doesn't apply to them. So then what does it apply to? Well, Paul is in prison for sharing the gospel. What he's saying here is that I am able to do what God created me to do when I am in him. When I am content with where he has me, what he gave me, and who he made me to be. That's what this verse actually means. This one here, and my God will supply all your needs. Well, who's the you? The your is the Philippian church who is giving him a care package. Paul says, and in your generosity, in your generosity, I am able to say that God will supply your church's needs so long as you are supporting the mission and the ministry of Christ and what he's doing. That's what this means. That as you sacrifice, as you are generously sacrificial for the good of the kingdom, then God will supply your needs. You've got to put the verses back in the context of contentment. So what all this means in context is that we, where you are and what you have and who you are is what and where God has for you. God has placed you in this moment and in this way in order to bring about the good of others and the glory of God. So we rest in his best. What happens when we all live individually and we rest in our best and the church as a whole is generous? Here's the fact that generosity 
part. Contentment breeds generosity. Real quickly, Paul said twice, I have learned. So let me ask you this question. Where did he learn that from? Because of the way that we lift up Paul, which we should respect him, but we need to be careful with that. Because of the way that we lift up Paul, we kind of get this idea that when he says, I have learned, don't you just immediately assume that Jesus whispered that in his ear and then he just completely understand it perfectly? He had no sanctification. It was just like Jesus directly downloads all of divinity into Paul and Paul's like, great, I'm a perfect Christian now. That's the way that we understand it. But what if, and I think this is more accurate, Paul learned a lot of things. Paul grew in being Christ-like through common grace, through his experiences, through his hardships, through meditating on the word of God, through things his mama told him, and through things that a stranger convicted him on. The same way that you and I grow. And so here's a theory. When Paul says, I have learned, keep in mind that the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, the four chapters of Philippians is Paul saying, thank you. You see, when Paul is writing this letter, sitting in a prison, chained to the wall or chained to a Roman guard, there's another man standing right there. This man brought him a care package from the Philippian church. Picture this big woven basket and uh, a couple of blankets in it. Maybe some bread, some parchments, and some ink for him to write on. Maybe a little bit of money so that he could buy things and, and, and get what he needs. And, and it was more money, but it got dwindled down as the Roman soldiers let them pass through each gate, you know, and, and the soldiers took a little bit. There is a literal care package sitting in front of him as Paul writes this literal letter. And there's a man from the Philippian church that brought it to him. There's a part of me that thinks that Paul is saying, because of your generosity, because of your own contentment, because of the way that you have loved me, I have learned. I have fully learned how to be content in everything that I am doing and everywhere I am and what I have. I thank God every thought of you. That that's where he learned that. So as a church, what my, what my drive for, what I'm trying to share with you is that as we are content in what we have, we give the rest away. As we are content in who we are as a church, where God has positioned us, what he has blessed us with, the way that he has built us and woven us together, then we are gracious and we are, 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 are beneficial to other people, that we are going to give those things away. It's like you heard this morning with the fact that our church this week gave $20,000 to the Life Choices Ministries, that we are standing in the gap, that we are going to inform and educate and support people. And we're not done yet with that sort of thing because we are content in what God has given us. So we give generously and graciously away. I have these two dogs. Y'all know about the two dogs, the dogs I can't stand, but we have them because Jackie likes them, you know. So we have these two dogs and uh, I guess they're fine or whatever, but they play this game. They play this game, it's, and it's literally a constant game. All day long, you know, they'll, they'll drop it for a little while with the play. And one of the dogs will walk around with a bone or a toy hanging out of their mouth. And it changes constantly. But there'll be this thing hanging out of its mouth. And it's just walking around with it. It's not doing anything. The other dog is constantly trying to get that, that. And so they don't like attack each other. They just wait and wait and wait. And so the one dog will have to lay it down for a second, right? Lay it down for just a second to start eating. And then whoosh, they just grab it and start walking around and the and you know the the turns have tabled right you know and so now they're going to like go after that one 
And so this is the game that they play all the time. Keep in mind this, that these two dogs are absolutely spoiled, all right? They're, they're absolutely, first of all, they're just worthless as dogs. They're not very good uh, companions, I don't think. And um, they're also not very good guard dogs at all, right? So they're just, they're just there. And they are spoiled in that everything they need is given to them. Everything. Their, their food is delivered twice a day in a nice little bowl that is washed, right? Their water is delivered to them. And their food is constantly changing because Rachel Ray or some blue buffalo or something told us that we need different food in here. And so we're getting that or, or, or this one has developed an allergy to the whatever. And so we got to get more food, you know, and that sort of stuff. They get new little collars and constant new toys, you know, just all this sort of stuff. Occasionally, they get on my furniture, right? And number one, at its very core, my dogs are living in my house and they're not humans, all right? So they're just spoiled. Everything in this life, everything that they need is handed to them, is gifted to them. And yet they spend nearly all of their waking hour trying to get what the other dog has. Do you hear me? Everything they need is gifted to them. And they spend so much of their time just trying to get what the other dog has. It's silly. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.